Welcome to the She Built This podcast, where we are sharing the stories of professionals and entrepreneurs who are on a mission to create the new norm by following their dreams and making them a reality. I'm your host, Emily Aborn, and together we are inspiring, growing, and giving you the tools you need to bring ideas to life so you can build whatever this means for you. straight to today's episode with my guest Kim Dawson because it is a good one let me tell you so real quick if this is your first time here and I imagine for some of you it is my name is Emily Aborn I'm a freelance content writer and the founder of She Built This. She Built This is yes this podcast and a community for women entrepreneurs where together as a group we really encourage one another to wake up every day loving what we do and cheering each other on in the making of that. I mean it, I mean exactly what I said in the intro. We are creating a new normal where you get to bring your dreams to life and build whatever this means to you. And the guests that I have on this show and the collaborators I work with, they help to guide us in doing just that. So if you are a woman in business or you want to be a woman in business, the She Built This community is a free Facebook group. And I got to tell you, it's not like a lot of the Facebook groups that you're part of. It is not spammy, shysty, hustle, grind, boring. Um, No, it is exciting and fun and supportive. And it's really all about walking alongside each other as we build businesses that allow us to live life on our own terms and create meaningful impact in the world. So learn more about She Built This at shebuiltthis.org and let's get straight to today's episode. I first met today's guest Kim Dawson at an online networking group. It was a coffee chat kind of situation with a couple of other um, women there and this is like part of what I talk about in my marketing momentum lab. You just never know where these things are going to go. Um, So I first met her at an online networking group and she's done now a workshop for She Built This. Uh, Kim has had me on her podcast. I've gotten to spend time with her in person at several networking events which is like too good to be true and we connect regularly in different online networking groups as well. Um, So I've been very drawn this entire time. I think I've known Kim, I've known of Kim or known her for about two and a half years. And I've always been very drawn to the way that her brain works. I started listening to her podcast, the Sassy Strategist podcast about a year ago, and just love her message and the practical way that she breaks things down that we go through and make so complicated and struggle with as entrepreneurs and business owners. And we're both very aligned in the fact that there is no right answer, right? It's all about looking at the facts, the data, the situation, the goals. Kim's wheelhouse is totally looking at the data and analyzing it. Um, But looking at all of those things and asking yourself what you really want and then choosing the answer that is right for you. And in this episode, we talk about that in regards to money, in regards to business growth, in regards to scaling. We talk about topics all around entrepreneurship and what it really means to make good money. Like what does that actually translate to in your life? What are the misconceptions and myths about scaling? And 
here's a here's here's a fun one for some of you. Um, how to increase your prices as you're growing your business and communicate that price increase to your clients. I definitely don't want to spoil any more of this episode for you, and I'm sure you don't want me to keep on babbling on. So suffice it to say, buckle up. This episode is a good one. Soak it in. Soak up every good word. And uh, without further ado, let me tell you about Kim. Kim Dawson is a results-driven business strategist, consultant, advisor, and occasionally plays the role of management accountant, though her clients often refer to her as their business coach. She's been an entrepreneur since she was seven years old, where she sold arts and crafts door-to-door, and she's been building businesses ever since. She has done it all, from brick and mortar to online businesses. Using her 20 plus years of entrepreneurial experience, along with a background in accounting, Kim helps small businesses optimize their pricing and procedures while navigating niche markets. Oh, I forgot. We also talk about niching, uh, building a team without cutting into their profitability. After working with Kim, clients often double and a few have tripled their revenue, all while hiring new team members, doing more of what they enjoy and gaining their free time back. Hi, Kim, and welcome at last to the She Built This podcast. Hi, Emily. How are you? Good. I didn't mean to rhyme there, I promise, but it just <laughs> it just came out. <laughs> um, I'm great. Thank you for asking. Uh, I love hearing people's entrepreneurial stories, like in addition to what I just read in your bio and your backstory. And I know that you have a really uh, similar one to my own. So I'd love for you to share like what brought you to where you are today. Yeah, that's always, I want to say it's an easy question, but in some ways it's not because I feel like I have to work to be succinct at this because I I feel like I could take up an entire show telling a story. And I'm sure you can relate because I know that you're quite a storyteller yourself. Agreed. (laughs) Uh, So where do I really start? I have truly been an entrepreneur since I was a little kid. I was in second grade and I had this idea that I wanted to make some of my own money. And at the time, you know, I wanted things like candy and toys and magazines and things like that. So my friend and I were like, okay, let's come up with a little business idea and we're going to figure out a way to make some money. So we decided that we were going to make arts and crafts. We were going to make, you know, jewelry and little magnets that people could put on their fridge. I mean, really silly things. And we were going to go around the neighborhood and sell them to our neighbors. So that's what we did. And we went around knocking on people's doors and we're like, hi, would you like to, you know, buy our magnets or buy our jewelry or whatever? And if at the end of the week I made $10, I was thrilled, you know, because I could get at least a magazine and a couple of candy bars for that. But I was also thinking like a business person, I was thinking, okay, well, if I made $10, I need to have some money to buy more supplies. So maybe I should set that aside And then the rest will be my spending money. So I was already thinking kind of like an accountant and an entrepreneur. So that's really where it started. And a lot of my motivation, honestly, is because I grew up in a family where we didn't have really any money. Neither of my parents went to college. I'm a first generation college graduate. And I could see from a very early age the struggles that my parents had always around money. And both of my parents were creative types. My father is an artist. My mother was a musician. And I think it kind of wove into my story because there was this part of me that knew I was never really going to make it in 
the corporate world, so to speak, because I was raised in a household where people didn't have corporate hours and didn't have corporate jobs and didn't go to college. So that wasn't really something on my radar. But at the same time, I had this desire to make enough money in my life that I didn't have to have the problems that they had and I didn't have to have those struggles. And to me, the answer was always entrepreneurship. I need to become an entrepreneur and I need to learn more about money. I need to know how to use it. I need to know how to save it. I need to know how to invest it. So continue along the story. When I was about 12 years old was when I got another business idea and I was again, selling artwork and I was making more money at that time. And when I was like making this money coming in, I thought, okay, I need something really good here. And much like my seven-year-old brain buying more supplies, my 12-year-old brain was, I need to start reading the Wall Street Journal. Oh my goodness. If you could imagine, I decided that I was going to take my money and get get a Wall Street Journal and try to teach myself finance. Now I have to tell you, I find the Wall Street Journal terribly boring. I probably haven't read it since I was 12 years old. It is so not my forte. But it's just how I was. It was kind of, you know, me trying to to be an entrepreneur, and that that carried through into high school and college. I was always looking for ways to make more money than minimum wage. So I did have minimum wage jobs when I was in high school. I worked in souvenir shops. I worked in hotels and restaurants. I did you know, waitressing tables and things like that. But I also was always coming up with business ideas. And that led me into majoring in accounting, which I did not want to be an accountant. I thought it would help teach me how to be an entrepreneur. So I got my accounting degree, graduated and said, okay, what do I do with this degree now? What business am I going to start? And I had no ideas. So I went to work as an accountant until I figured it out. So I was able to gain some skills in accounting and finance and understanding money and all of that. But I also knew that I really did not want that traditional nine to five job. And so one thing led to another, and I wound up developing an interest in health and wellness. So I decided to go back to school. I got a a master's degree in nutrition. I earned multiple certifications as a health and wellness instructor, fitness instructor, group exercise, personal training, did all of that, and eventually opened up my own um, studio where I had nutrition counseling and group exercise classes and um, personal training. And I I ran a brick and mortar business for quite some time, as well as consulting and coaching and things like that. And then simultaneously, at the time I was married, um, my now ex-husband and I had co-founded a software company. He was an engineer. He was um, very IT sort of a guy. I had that business background. We put it together and we launched the software company that we wound up having for 10 years and then eventually sold it. And I am almost at the end of the story, I promise. I'm Um, loving it, just so you know. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Um, So I I got to this point where, you know, we we built this business. We we went up to about 25 employees. And then, um, like I said, we sold it um, to another company. And then a year later, we got divorced. And so I was at this point in my life where I kind of felt like everything fell apart and I didn't really know what to do. It was scary and it was confusing. And I just said, okay, well, let's let's go back to the basics here. And I knew that I didn't want to do anything in the technology industry. It's not like I wanted to go out and have another startup. And I really didn't have any interest anymore in the health and wellness industry. So I was starting brand new. And with this whole new life, I thought, 
okay, well, what am I really passionate about? And when I put everything together, I thought, you know, I'm really passionate about entrepreneurship and the ability of people, not just to make money and be profitable and all of that, but really to have the freedom in their life to make their own decisions on how they want to live, what kind of lifestyle they want to live, and just feel like they have autonomy. And at the same time, I felt very passionate about helping women in this capacity as somebody who is going through a divorce, because I realized all of the things that come from that of having to be a woman who's independent and take care of yourself to be financially independent. And I put those two things together and I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be a business consultant for women entrepreneurs who want to learn how to be financially independent and also have successful businesses that support the freedom and the lifestyle that they want to live. And I launched my consulting business in 2016 or 2015, 2015, I think. And I have been doing this ever since. That is a beautiful story. And I have two, I hope this is okay, but I have two follow-up questions before we kind of get into the questions. Because I know we have a lot to like, I have a lot of things I want to talk to you about. Um, But my two follow-up questions are, first of all, when doing business with your spouse, did you find that to be really difficult? For me, it wasn't. Um, And I think it's because we did very different things. And with the job that I had, I was able to work as much or as little as I really needed to. I, I had autonomy in my role. And I was really doing finance and HR and managing staff and payroll and bookkeeping and things like that. And he wasn't doing anything like that. So I found it fairly easy to actually work together. Okay. That's awesome. I love hearing like it, either the challenges or the uh, in-syncness that couples have together when, they, when they're when they working together and growing a business together. So, um, and my other question for you is how old were you when you had that fitness studio, if you don't mind if I ask that? Yeah. So I was, I'm trying to think about this. I think um, because I went to work in the industry before opening my own place, had to gain experience. So I did that for about five years working in other facilities. But I think I opened my studio when I was around 28 or 29. Awesome. That yeah. was the exact. So I, I just asked because uh, your and my story have so many interesting synchronicities. It's funny, like just even down to the fact that I used to go door to door to the, my neighbors and I had like a shoebox full of arts and crafts and I would open the shoebox like one of those salespeople that have all the watches on their jacket or something and get people to buy those arts and crafts. Like, you know, same thing, jewelry and Charleston shoes and whatever really we found lying around that we thought was sellable. Um, and I also had my first business, which was in health and wellness in when I was 28. So I just love hearing all these things. Um, I love hearing the backstory. And this brings me into another form of storytelling because I am a content writer and a content fanatic. I'm curious to hear what, like you have a lot of content that you put out there as well. Um, So I'm curious to hear which is your favorite form of content and which is your least favorite form. Whoa, what a question, Emily. So I will, I will confess, I don't love creating my own content. Um, and I think it's just for me, it's a very stressful thing. And I'm sure maybe, maybe some of the listeners feel that way as well. And that's probably why they hire people like you. And, um, I do, I do like sharing though with my audience. And I think I mostly love doing video believe it or not, because I know a lot of people don't like doing video. But what I think I love about video 
is that I feel like I'm really connecting with my audience. And if I have something that I want to share, I, I feel like getting on camera and sharing it is a way to share my enthusiasm for it. And I'm connecting with them. And it just feels like they're really getting to experience what a little bit what it's like to know me or to work with me. So I would say that that's probably my favorite. Um, also really love podcasting. Again, it's, it's more of an audio format. I would say that my least favorite, um, which is going to sound funny because I'm also a writer, but I might say creating blog posts. And I say that because I don't do it very often. And maybe because I feel like when I write them, they just sound very informational and I want a little bit more of the personality to come through. Yeah, it's a fine line with blog posts uh, to find that personality, but also make sure that it's like, I mean, blog posts are supposed to work for you with like SEO and things like that. So right. I love hearing these things. Um, and you're really good at video and you're really good at like connecting in that way, even with eye contact and body language. It's it's spot on. So, Thank you. Um, but this brings me to a question much bigger than content. So you know, with my clients, I do give them permission to like, if there is something that they just absolutely despise doing, I really try to challenge them in like, well, why are you doing it? So I'm curious to know as a business strategist, do you give your clients permission to not do things that they just absolutely can't stand? Or do you kind of believe that as business owners, sometimes we just have to do things that we really don't want to do? Well, I'll tell you, I, I think when I, when I think about that, I think of two things, but one of the things I think is that there's a difference between something needing to get done and you being the one to do it. So I, I just want to make that distinction. And the example that I would give that you've probably heard before is we all have things in our lives that we have to do that we don't want to do. Like I don't like doing laundry. I don't like doing dishes. But unless I do these things, I'm going to be living in filth and I will mm -hmm. have no clean clothes. So I have to do them. It's just part of life. And I think part of being a human is understanding that we have things that we do that we love doing and we have things that we have to do that we don't really want to do. It's just, it's just part of the process, right? But as business owners, we do have, and actually as people, we have some flexibility to say, you know what, this particular thing, I really don't like doing this. So I'm going to hire somebody else to do it. And we totally can do that. And it works. It's, I feel like it's almost cheating the system, but we're really not, right? So if I really, truly didn't want to do my laundry, I could drop it off at a laundry place every week and have them do it for me. But here's the thing. If I make that decision, I have to also be willing to agree to the consequence of that. And the consequence is that it's going to cost me money that it won't cost me if I do it myself. So really when I have these conversations with my clients, it's kind of, well, do you want to spend all this time doing this thing that you really don't want to do? Or would you rather save that time? Cause the time is a little bit more valuable to you than the money, pay somebody else to do it. And then you save the time and you don't have to do it. Sounds like a win-win. <laughs> this brings me perfectly to my next question, which is about like scaling, which sometimes looks like making that first hire or making hires or outsourcing some of the work. So when you, when you think about scaling, first of all, I guess what kind of comes up for you in the different ways that it can be achieved, but also where do you see people missing the mark when they say they want to scale, but they're not able to do so? 
Yeah, you know, I think first I would say one of the things that I do notice is that everybody does talk about scaling because I think many of us think that it will solve all of our problems. If we just scale our business, whatever that even means, if we just scale, we'll be able to work less and make more money. But where I see some of the, I don't want to say the mistake come in, but maybe like the way you worded it was better, sort of like where people sort of miss the mark, is that you can do really well in your business and build a very successful business without necessarily scaling it. It could simply be making a decision about what do you actually want to do in your business? How do you want to spend your time? What sort of an impact do you want to have out in the world? And then being strategic about your prices and being strategic about your operations so that you can create that business the way you want it and be able to generate enough income so that you don't have all the stresses that come along with not being profitable enough. So I just kind of wanted to put that out there first. I am so happy you did because I'm 100% with you on that. Like I, it, we are preached to that we need to scale, scale, scale. And furthermore, that it needs to look like having a team or having a membership or making money while you sleep. Um, and I too agree with you that we can make good money in our business without necessarily needing to have a 50 employee team. Exactly. I think it really comes down to asking yourself, what is it that you really want? Because I think that, again, using your term where people miss the mark is sometimes we get, we can get so, what's the word I would look for? Um, like we think we want something because everybody in the universe is telling us that that's what we want, but we're not really getting in touch with what we want as individuals. And what I see sometimes with clients, especially new clients, they may come to me and say, oh, I want to scale. And that's why I want to hire you because you're going to help me. I'm going to hire all these people. I'm going to, like you said, create this program or I'm going to do this. And then when we really have a conversation, I find out that they don't really want to spend the next six months writing some product, or they don't really want to you know, do all these. They don't really want to manage a team of 10 people that they would rather simplify their life. And so I would just suggest, you know, really get in touch with what do you really want from your business? What do you, what do you want to get out of it? So I guess as a way to kind of sidestep, let's say we're like, okay, I don't want to scale. I just want to make really good money doing, doing what I'm doing, but I need to kind of, uh, increase my pricing. So you did an amazing pricing workshop for the members of She Built This. And if people are listening and they're VIPs, they can rewatch that because it was like mind blowing. <laughs> but um, for people that miss the workshop, how do you sort of, how do you know when it's time to raise your prices? And then like, how do you start implementing that? Yes. Good question. Great question. And it may be surprising to most people that the time to increase your prices is before you actually think you should. And the reason for that is because what I usually see happen with people is they'll start off with prices that are fairly low, especially in the beginning of their business, because they're trying to attract business. And that makes sense. You're new, you don't have a lot of experience, you don't have a lot of clients. So you're just trying to get your foot in the door. Totally makes sense. But then over time, you need to start up-leveling your prices because you may not be able to afford to live on the lower pay that you went in with initially. And you also may need to be hiring people, not necessarily as employees, but you may find that when you start getting more client work in, you really need to hire people like maybe a VA or maybe a content writer or maybe somebody to manage your social media. 
maybe you need a new website that's a little bit more updated and maybe you need new branding photography. Like things are going to come up that can be really expensive for a small business owner. So if you're not thinking ahead, then when these things come up and you really need them, you're not going to have the funds to pay for them. And that can be a really stressful situation to be in when you're just drowning in work and you really need help and you have no idea how you can afford it. So by thinking a little bit ahead and planning and saying, you know what, the the sort of trajectory that I'm on right now, I'm going to have a full client load by the end of next year. And all of these clients, you know, they're going to be, you know, I'm going to be doing this specific type of work. I'm really going to need to do this, this, and that. It's going to cost me this much money. I need to start incorporating that into my pricing now so that when that comes up next year, I'm ready. Do you find that, uh, many business owners you encounter are thinking proactively like this, or do you find a lot of people acting re or responding reactively? Um, I think my clients do try to be proactive, to be honest. And I think that their, their intent is to be proactive. They're trying to do it, but they usually hire me because they need a little bit of support in that. And it could be something where they know that they need to increase their prices, but they're not so sure how to do it, or they're not really sure how to get their clients to agree to pay higher rates, or they're not quite sure how they're going to attract maybe a higher level market. So they, they're they're doing it proactively, but they might just not know how. Yeah. Let's Okay. So when it comes to pricing, let's... What's your most simple piece of advice when it comes to, let's say, delivering the news? Let's say you work with somebody ongoing. Like for me, it's a little bit different because I do project by project. So if I up my price, nobody necessarily knows that I up my price. But let's say you are a person that's working with somebody on a regular recurring basis and it's come time to up your prices. What are some ways that you help to make it like a little easier for people in approaching that with their clients? Yes, I love that question, and I do get it a lot. And you're absolutely right. I just want to say this, that project base is so much easier because you get up your rates and nobody knows it. But when you are on retainer models or you have regular clients, what I usually suggest is first, make sure that you take the time to calculate what those new, new rates should be. So don't just guess at something. Mm. Really take a look at your business, your expenses, where you're trying to go, what you need to pay for, all of those sort of things. And the reason why I suggest that is because when you come up with those new prices, they're grounded in mathematics. They're grounded in principle and in logic and in fact. And when you know this, it's so much easier to communicate it to your audience because in the back of your mind, you're saying, you know what, this is what I have to charge you or else I'm going to go out of business or else I'm going to lose money. And it helps build confidence. So that's why I say that's really the first step. But after you've done that, the way that I usually suggest communicating it is I would select a certain time of year and it does not have to be at the beginning of the year, like some people do, but choose a certain time of year and say, okay, this is when I'm going to go up in rates. And I usually suggest, of course, it depends on your business and how you interact with your clients and all that. But generally speaking, create an email that's a very nice email using something called the sandwich technique. And some people are already familiar with this. I do talk about it a lot. But the sandwich technique is starting off with something positive, filling in I want to say the bad news is not really the bad news, but it's the price increase or whatever news you have to deliver, and then finishing off with something positive. So an example of a letter might be starting off by saying, 
Hey, it's been so wonderful working with you. I love all the things that we've accomplished together. Maybe even list some of those things so they're seeing the results of working with you. And then after you've reminded them of all the great things that they've got from working with you, then you go in and say, at this time, it's I, I've decided that I do need to do a price increase because, and here's something very important. I do not advise people to tell your clients that you're going to increase your rates because your costs have gone up. And here's why. Because your clients don't, you know, not trying to be like rude here, but your clients don't really care that your costs have gone up. <laughs> I'm trying to be tactful, but like they really don't care that your costs have gone up. What they care about is themselves and how it impacts them. So my advice is when you do deliver the, the news about a price increase, do it in a way where you're focusing on how it benefits them. And it could be, I've decided I want to start taking on less clients so that I can give you more of my attention, so that I can give you a higher level of service, so that I, that I can provide you with these new services that I would love to provide you with. Ooh, and go in I with love that. that. Yeah, and I then, love that. And then you finish by saying, I've loved working with you. I hope to continue to work with you for a long time in the future. Please reach out if you have any questions. And that's you it. I love that. And I would also add, like as a content person, um, when you do that sandwich method, one of the tips that uh, Sheila Heen actually gave in our feedback podcast about the sandwich method is make sure that it's the specificity level is is the same, the same way through the whole way through. So in the beginning, you're being very specific about the person you're speaking with in the middle, you're still very specific. And at the end, you're wrapping it up with something specific as well, so that it's not like um, generic praise and then very specific and then generic praise. You know what I mean? So it just like stays cohesive and really focused on that person because that's going to make them feel that even more. Absolutely. Definitely. Um, it's so interesting, like how pricing is so, it can be such an emotionally fraught topic. Money can be such an emotional topic. And so I think like having that logic base that this is why I need to do this. And this is when I'm doing this is really, really helpful for some people. And for some of us, you know, it's like, well, I could be happy not raising my rates, you know, but you have to think of it with a business brain and a logic brain. Yes. And I do want to add one thing is that we've talked about sort of one aspect of pricing, but there is another aspect that is important to discuss, and that is how it's going to play out in the market, so to speak. And why this is important is because some people sometimes think, well, I'm just going to raise my rates and I'm going to say, you know, oh, I'm charging my value and therefore people are going to pay it. And the reality is, is people might not pay that because the market might not be willing to bear it. And that is an important factor when we're thinking about pricing. So I just sort of want to put that out there that it can be really confusing for a business owner when you do the calculations and you realize, oh, wait a minute, I have to charge $10 for this ice cream cone in order for me to stay in business and be profitable. But the market is saying, no way am I paying $10 for an ice cream cone because now you're at an impasse. And that's going to lead to more questions to say, well, hmm, can I trim costs? Can I completely create some niche market and just sell to people who will buy a $10 ice cream cone? Like, do I need to use different ingredients? What, what do I need to do here? And you brought me to my question about niching. 
<laughs> I'm like, I'm dying to talk about niching. So I know you talk about it a lot. And I want to hear, like, um, is there a way to niche yourself price-wise? Like, we, I think we often hear of niching ourselves with, like, a certain client avatar or ideal client. But is pricing a way to niche yourself? It can be as long as it's tied into whatever the actual product or service is that you are selling. So I do think there are many ways to niche. It can be industry. It can be service. It, it can be related to pricing. It can be a lot of things. It could also be personality and brand. You know, you might be selling something with a, with a certain brand to it that isn't going to appeal to everybody, but might appeal to a certain audience. And one of the examples I think of is a lot of times when people shop for food, you know, some person may say, you know, I want to get soda and I just, that's what I want is I, I want a soda and they're going to buy soda. And somebody else is going to say, no, 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 I want kombucha. Right. And so they have different needs in what they want. And so those are two very different markets. So I do think it's important to, um, to put that out there. And now I'm trying to think, what was your original question before I went off on the tangent? The oh, I guess about pricing. Yeah, I guess just like, do you recommend niching? Um, I, I hear it both ways. You know, I hear cast a really wide net and I hear niche down. So I, you know, it's, it's such a tough thing because it, I think it really does depend on what we're talking about and what your business is. Mm -hmm. When you're too broad, this is my, this is my experience. When you're, when you have a small business and you're too broad, you actually make it so that you have a lot more competition and it becomes much more difficult to stand out because you're just one of many, many, many. And you also don't have the capacity to necessarily sell to many, many, many because you don't have the resources that a big business would have. So one of the reasons why I like the idea of niching down when you have a small business is it reduces your competition and it makes it much easier to communicate to your audience. You know exactly who they are and they know who you are. And then therefore it makes sense. It also makes sense more with the quantity, if you want to look at that way of what you can provide. But going back to what you were saying about pricing, why I originally said it really depends kind of on what you're selling is, are you selling something that's worth that price? So you, you don't necessarily want to say to yourself, well, you know what, I'm going to niche myself so that I sell you know, like I said, I'm going to use ice cream cones because we're on that. So like, I'm going to say, I want to sell a $10 ice cream cone. I don't know if that's really the, the best way to approach it because it might be harder to understand who your audience actually is. Whereas if you were to say, you know what, I want to sell an ice cream cone that's made with milk from local farmers that um, use organic farming and do their best to reduce the, you know, environmental in, uh, footprint and all of that kind of stuff. If there's sort of a mission behind it, if there's values behind it, if there's purpose behind it, then it isn't really that you're selling a $10 ice cream cone. It's that you're selling a mission, you're selling a cause, you're selling a purpose. And that can be a way to niche yourself. And it will be much easier to sell that $10 cone, not because it's $10, but because of the values that went into creating it. Yeah. And I think you are so, is, when you get clear on that, either on your values or who you want to serve or what you want to offer, and it's smaller rather than many, many things, um, I think it's just so much less confusing. Like, I think we all know that person where we're like, what do they actually even do? Because <laughs> they just do everything um, yes. for anyone. <laughs> 
So, okay. I kind of want to shift a little bit into talking specifically about you and your strategy and coaching style. And I just like, there are a lot of coaches and a lot of strategists out there. So I guess to your, to your specific niche, what makes you different as a strategist? Yeah. So great question. And the first thing that I I do want to address, because I think it's important is what is the difference actually between a strategist and a coach? Because we see a lot of these terms, strategist, coach, consultant, what do they really mean? And they are different technically. And it's one of the reasons why I call myself a strategist. I do technically do some coaching because it kind of falls in there, but I don't usually refer to myself as a coach. And here's why. Coaches tend to serve in a role that is supportive in a way where they give you the platform to listen and they allow you to work through whatever it is that you're thinking, you're feeling. Um, maybe you need, you have hard decisions to make and you're not really sure how to make them. So having a coach is a great sounding board and they can maybe present questions to you to get you thinking a little bit differently so that you can kind of break, make breakthroughs on your own to figure out what it is that you really want. And I think coaches in a lot of ways, whether you're a business coach or a life coach, and sometimes there's a little bit of a mixing in there, their role is really just to guide you to find the answers yourself. Whereas hmm. a strategist is somebody who will look and analyze things. We like somebody like myself, I look at your financials, I look at your bookkeeping, I look at your operations, I look at your processes, and then I will say to you, hey, what is it that you're trying to do? What's your goal? And I'll look at what you have going on and I'll say, okay, well, if you want to get to that goal, working with what you have here, we need to make some changes and here are my recommendations. So one of the key differences is that coaches traditionally, I mean, there's always gray areas and all this, but coaches traditionally won't actually give their clients advice or specifically tell them what to do. Whereas a strategist or a consultant will. I love that differentiation. Thank you for making that because I'm sure I'm not the only one confused about that. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So tell me how you stand out as, uh, as different in that, or maybe you, maybe that's, that was the answer is I'm a strategist, not a coach. (laughs) Honestly, it is part of it because there there are a lot of business coaches out there and I and I think that many business coaches who go into coaching and I, this is a big general statement I just want to say like I'm making a huge generalization but I think a lot of people who go into coaching they go into it because their skill set is really in working with people and they can do things like help you with accountability you know keep you on task help you um, set goals and achieve them just by being organized in a way. Um, so they, their skills are really in being su- in that sort of a supportive role. And they might be really good listeners and really good at asking the right questions to get you to come to those conclusions. Whereas somebody like myself, a lot of my skills are in the fact that I'm very analytical and I'm able to connect where you're at now to where you're trying to go by making specific recommendations of action items that need to happen. And I also think that what sets me apart is that I do have a financial background Mm -hmm. and a lot of strategists and certainly most coaches I've met 
don't have a financial background or may not have a financial background, and they also might not even have an entrepreneurial background. And so that's something that really differentiates me from a lot of coaches. So some people go into business coaching because they're really great with people or they earned a coaching certification. Um, They might even have sort of a therapeutic background, but they might not have ever actually owned a business, a successful business that they scale and grew and all of that. So that's something that really differentiates me is that I have been a lifelong entrepreneur. I've owned a brick and mortar. I've owned an international product-based company. I've owned service-based companies. So I bring a lot of experience. Which in my mind is totally something that people should be looking for when hiring any service provider. Um, Does this person have experience? Do they know what they're doing? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think that's why too, like there is definitely a role for coaches, especially, you know, whether you call yourself a business coach or a life coach, they serve a lot of purposes. And I think I I just want to say that I want to say that they do serve us a lot on mindset. I think Mm -hmm. many of those coaches do a lot on mindset and people really need that positive mindset going into things. I think that from my work, I tend to work with people who are sort of a little bit past that point and they really just want the nuts and bolts of like, Kim, just tell me how to do this. Super helpful. Thank you for making that distinction. Um, So now I am curious to know, do you, what challenges, like as far as you've come in all of the different things that you've done, in all of the people that you've worked with, what's something that you still have uh, that you still struggle with in your own business or you're still challenged by? And do you use a coach or a mentor or a strategist to help you with some of those things? Oh, that is a great question. That's a great question. And I am going to answer it completely honestly, because I think that honesty is always what's most helpful. And honestly, despite the fact that I have been in business for so long, and I have wonderful clients and I love them, I still have to consistently work on marketing my business. And I think that that's something that surprises people. I think many people, especially in the first few years and they're struggling and they're trying to get clients, they're like, someday I'm going to reach the horizon and business is going to fall in my lap and everything's going to be wonderful. And I'm going to tell you, I have been doing my business for seven years. I have still not seen that horizon. And I am always having to think about my marketing. I have to think about what am I doing on social? What about my newsletters? What about my podcast? Um, What's the pipeline this year? What's the pipeline next month? It's a constant thing. So I guess my advice to all of you out there is maybe just embrace that as part of the entrepreneurial experience. It's just what it means to own a business. You're always going to be worried. You're always going to be looking for new clients. You're always going to be filling the pipeline. You're always going to be marketing. It's just what we do. I really appreciate that honesty. And that is another reminder not to be afraid of putting yourself out there with your marketing. And also the the more consistent you are, the easier that gets. You know what I mean? Like that's the only thing I think that makes it much easier is just okay, well, now I'm consistent because I have a plan and I know how to do it. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's about exactly what you're saying. It's setting up sort of systems, I guess, having processes for things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right, what's your favorite challenge to help other people overcome in their businesses? So my favorite challenge, honestly, is I'm all with the honesty today. Honestly, my favorite challenge actually is probably more of a coaching skill than a strategy skill. That's why I say this, because it's almost shocking even to me. But my favorite thing that I love to do 
is I often will have clients who, of course, they come to me for pricing and all this, and then they get this opportunity for a potentially big client. You know, it could be a, it could be a really big client, the biggest proposal that they've ever given out. And I work with them and I'm like, okay, well, you know, what do you think? And, you know, we run through the numbers and what's the job going to be like? And then I'm like, all right, you're going to pitch this at whatever that amount is. I'm just going to make up an, let's say it's $50,000, right? And I'm like, you're going to pitch this at $50,000. And they come to me like, I don't know. I've never pitched a proposal that high before. I've never done that. I, I don't know if I could do this. And I'm like, you totally got this. Just send it. And if they don't accept it, they don't accept it, whatever. But Put down on that proposal exactly what you want. Don't be afraid mm. to ask for it. It's okay if it doesn't work out. More will be down the line. Just do it. And then when they come back to me and they're like, they took it. They took the proposal. This is so amazing. And to see their joy and their happiness when they literally, I mean, some of my clients have been in business for 10 years. And when they sign the biggest proposal that they've ever signed before for the biggest client they've ever had, it just makes me love what I do. And it makes me feel like I'm really helping the people excuse me, the people that I work with. It gave me the chills. It's so exciting. Um, and I, if anybody needs to, just rewind that about 30 seconds and listen to it again and again and again and again. And you got your free dose of Kim's coaching for the day. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, I love that. Um, all right, let's move into the rapid roundup. I know I didn't prep you for these, but I'll just ask you three. And the first one is, since we're being honest, what was the last thing that you Googled? What was the last thing that I Googled? Um, well, this is not very exciting, but the last thing I Googled was how to add a book now button to my Instagram profile. <laughs> okay, wait, I'm trying to think about this. Oh, <laughs> I need to Google that too, because I didn't know that existed. See, I just learned something new. Well, I saw it on somebody's profile. I'm like, how did they get that? And then it, I tried to do it and I followed the instructions and it's not working. And so I'm in the midst of trying to figure out how to get it to work. Okay. <laughs> I'm adding that to my list today. Um, so speaking of, I guess, booking, uh, what was the last book you read? Well, so I am actually about to read, can I go for the, the next book that I'm going to read? Sure. Because it's sitting on my desk. Um, I am about to read a new book by uh, Delia Efron, which I don't know if you know who she is. She is the sister of Nora Efron who, for those who may be a little bit older, remember all of the rom-coms of the 90s, like um, You've Got Mail and Sleep Does in Seattle. Yes, so, I knew Nora. Yeah, so Nora's sister, um, Dalia, actually co-wrote several um, of those movies with her. She's a screenwriter. She is a New York Times bestseller. And she just came out with a new book called Left on 10th. And it is about her experience being 73 years old and falling in love again and Aww. falling in love with life again. And, um, you know, after she's had a lot of heartache and, and different things. And so she, um, like I said, I'm just about to start the book, but apparently she reconnected with some man that she dated like 40 years ago. And they start writing letters to each other and then they start dating again. And the reason why I chose this book is I am a, a fan of the Efrons, but it's also because I love stories. I love memoirs about how you sh like continue to live your life, no matter how old you are, no matter what's going on in your life, to really fully embrace your life and to just be excited about, about what's around the corner. I love that. I'm adding that to my book list for the summer, for sure. And I will let you know. We can compare notes. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. Last thing is just how can we find and connect with you online? I know you have a beautiful new website. Um, and, and I think that you also have a really nice pricing guide on there too. But share about your podcast, your book, anything. This is your time to shine. 
Great, thank you. So if you want to learn more about me, you can go to my website, which is kdawsonco.com. And um, I do have a new website, so I, I am loving that. Thank you. And I have a podcast called The Sassy Strategist, and it's on Spotify. It's on Apple Podcasts. I think it's on most of the platforms, so definitely check that out. And I do have a free pricing guide if people want to use it. It's all about how do you actually implement a price increase. So when you know that you're ready to do it, how do you do it with your clients? And you can download that right on my website. And if you want to follow me on Instagram, I am at Sassy Strategist. And you have really awesome videos, to your point earlier, um, that you share on Instagram and on LinkedIn. So Kim, I so appreciate this. I could have talked to you all day, honestly, but I'm like, uh uh-oh, we're kind of rounding the 45-minute mark here. So thank you so much for taking your time and sharing all of this knowledge with us. And we'll have to have you back. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. Thank you for inviting me on the show. I hope everybody got a a little something out of today, I hope. Thank you. To learn more about She Built This and to join our community and get involved for yourself, visit www.shebuiltthis.org.